Welcome to Authentic Health Fridays on The Jason Wright Show. This segment empowers you to reclaim control over your well-being and live a life aligned with your body's natural design. I am thrilled to guide you through insightful conversations and practical advice, all geared towards helping you achieve the vibrant and balanced life you deserve. In this dynamic series, we have the privilege of tapping into the expertise of a true visionary in the field of health and wellness, Dr. Gus Vickery, the founder of Authentic Health, located in the scenic heart of Asheville, North Carolina, is more than just a renowned author and speaker. He's a beacon of wisdom in the world of precision medicine and integrated health. Each episode, Dr. Vickery will be your trusted companion on a journey to unlock the secrets of authentic health. Drawing from his extensive knowledge and expertise, he'll share invaluable tools, tips, and information to guide you in understanding your body's unique needs and embracing the principles of precision medicine. All right, Dr. Gus, I'm glad to see that you are wearing your your standard issue black tee. How are you, brother? I am wonderful today. Beautiful here in Asheville. We've got a 70-degree surprise mid-November day. Uh, just, you know, lots of still foliage on the tree, but some falling. It's just really nice. How is it there? Woke up this morning, and it was 70 degrees. And it's like, right now I'm looking out, it's bright and sunny. Same thing, man. It's like some, uh, it, it's really nice. I think it's going to. It looked like it was going to rain earlier, but it didn't. And now it's cleared off. And I think it's going to start cooling off. I think it's supposed to be like cold and rainy here pretty quick, which I'll tell you right now, I like the sunshine. I love that, but I want the temperatures to drop. I'm a cold weather guy. And it's the the most important reason why is because my clothes are just much cooler. Even though they're just all black, my, mm-hmm. my black sweaters, I just look cooler in the winter. I don't like summer clothes. And so it's in which it's very important to me that my fashion standards be met. Well, yeah. And to the point of our discussion today, like if you can't get your cold in, how are you going to develop that side of your resiliency, right? Like all you've got is the heat resiliency aspect. Well, I hope the good weather holds for a few more days because, you know, I'll be in Fort Worth this uh, Saturday speaking at a conference. Uh, and so it'd be nice to have a couple of nice days in sunny Texas before returning home. Well, I hope it's great for you. And that was a nice little segue into today's conversation. So just as a recap, last week, folks, we talked about how stress unattended can sneak up and, and get you. Bottom line is it is uh, one of the single most deadly. Um, it, it's, it's a villain. It, it, it'll kill you and if, it, if it's left, left unattended. But here's the good news. You can kind of flip the script if you want to. The it can also be something that is a benefit if you leverage it properly. And so today, what we're going to be doing is talking about ways that you can leverage stress to your benefit, uh, which comes with a fancy scientific name to it, which is hormesis. So everybody, I want to just drill that in. You know, Dr. Gus, you talked about it right before I hit record. Hormesis is is a good thing too much hormesis might be bad but for everybody the, the word of the day if we were back in our, our childhood at sesame sesame street the the barrio that is sesame street as once i'm on the office they were talking about the uh about sesame street and uh dwight Schrute said oh sesame street is that the barrio with all the puppets just such a <laughs> 
<laughs> so just like the barrio with all the puppets, the word of the day is hormesis. So why don't you, since you're the doctor, why don't you give the definition of terms here and starting with hormesis, Dr. Gus? Yeah, hormesis is just a fancy word to refer to positive stressors that that ultimately result in adaptive and positive responses for human systems. They augment your epigenetic expression in a good way. Um, you know, horm hormesis, the, the uh, other term, it's, it's the same term, but it's often called hormetic stressors, right? So we have these different hormetic stressors that we're going to do a walk through some of them in this discussion today and talk about how you can do it and why you might do it and what it's good for, but that we can apply to our human system and end up getting these really good results because we have all these potentials in our um, genome, right? Our DNA encodes, and we've talked about this before, we have our DNA, our raw DNA, and there's an enormous amount of information in there. Every cell in our body has all that DNA. And the cells are expressing the portions of the DNA that allow them to play their role. But we have the ability to express different versions of ourselves depending on the inputs our system has received. It will respond based on necessity. It will express things based on the need to express them. So if a human being spends all of their time uh, in a climate-controlled environment, never goes hungry, doesn't have to move, what was that movie where they're up in the spaceship and they've become these like, I can't think of people, Wally -E or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wall -E. uh, yeah. Anyway, so if, if, if that becomes a version of a human being, then you will downregulate all kinds of genetic expression potentials, right? Your ability to, to do and accomplish will be blunted or to endure, uh, depending on what circumstances may change. Likewise, if you expose your body to various forms of stressors that can be positive programmed properly, you will begin to increase epigenetic expression of those potentials of those capabilities. So humans have the ability to climb up mountains to 20,000 plus feet without oxygen support and, and you know do that. They have the ability to train a mammalian dive reflex and spend more than five minutes underwater and diving down 100 feet without oxygen support. They have the ability to run a hundred miles longer, of course. They have, I mean, you, you, you know, we have the ability to lift however many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds and our cognitive abilities that like what we've been able to do to fly spaceships into outer space and design this. I mean, you, you just realize all, every single homo sapien has all of these potentials in us. Now, some of us have more potential than others in certain domains, but we all have some degree of those potentials. But if we don't put the demand pressure on the body uh, to express those potentials, then they will not be expressed. And if we go long enough down the road of life without ever putting demand, they'll be lost permanently to us. We'll get to a point where there's just no accessing them any longer. And that's a less comprehensively robust human being, right? And so the goal is to uh, restore, well, to either maintain, if you can do it, but in this state of time of human existence, it's about restoring these potentials, these capacities, and then maintaining them as late into life as possible. If your goal is to experience um, all of the benefits of what good health can do for you, because in the end, that's uh, part of health is that ability to live out this potential. So hormesis is one of the paths uh, of, well, or, or one of the tools we use along the way to, to craft this 
robust, anti-fragile human system. So I guess David Goggins, he is a, he is a hormesis ninja to say the least. Uh, <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. And now one of the things that I just uh, did an interview today with uh, three guys over at the Christus Human Performance Center, and we were just kind of riffing on health, wellness, and longevity. And one of the topics that came up with why you would want to maintain good balance, strength, bone density, all the stuff we're normally talking about. And, and I kind of summed up why I do a lot of what I do. Yes, I, I'm, I'm not going to turn 50 biologically. I want to live as healthy of a life as I can for as long as I can. And, but more than anything, you know what, Gus, I, I, I think I really, I really thought about this a lot. It was weird. It came out in this conversation I was having with these guys today. One of the main reasons why I work out and do the training that I do now is should the need ever arrive for me to have a really for recovery. And I think about this. I think if I'm ever in a wreck and I'm lying in a hospital bed, I want the physician to be able to look at Jimlin and say, you know what? He's going to recover quicker than normal humans would, because it's obvious this dude is in very good shape. He's, he's, uh, his, his oxygen levels are great. It, it looks like, I mean, just, you know, th I, that's what I want because we don't know what life's going to throw at us. And so for the listener out there, I think it's important to understand that when we talk about training and like, uh, it's funny and I know I get my, my chops busted on it and I, I full, I'm here for it. I take it. I can make fun of myself. I'm one of those guys that has posted on Instagram of me in my ice barrel more than once. People get sick of the ice barrel post, the ice plunge post. But I don't care. When I go to Asheville, we are going to jump into your cold swimming pool as part yeah. of my my uh, training for my under fifty biological. And you and you'll take a picture of it and post it. Of course <laughs> I will. Of course I will. But here's the thing, folks. It's not just about getting likes on the gram. It for it is. It's not just about doing something that. Yes, it's doing something challenging. It's doing something, but it's also preparing for those what ifs in life that we don't have. And when you get old, you're not competing, and that's the thing. I think Jerry Seinfeld does a whole bit of how we basically exercise just to make it through the next workout you know that there's, <laughs> just because you don't play sports it's almost to the point where for me the older i get the more i'm training the more i want to train for that time when it might just be for quicker recovery so it might be literally i'm training for whenever i go down and i can't be at it for a while and so as we go through these elements of hormesis, these things that you've heard of by another term, then just remember this will make you not just more resilient for getting through your day to day, but also it will help you should that time come where you are down, you have a wreck, you have a fall, you break a limb, you, you get, uh, you contract COVID. This will, these things, if you will go ahead and simulate some, some, some 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 hormesis then you will be better prepared for those moments that life's just going to throw at you when you're not looking so or you're not ready so yeah you're you're getting into sort of the why reasons why would we do it what are the motivations that we can absolutely. use to make ourselves do something that because it's a form of stress is uncomfortable it makes us uncomfortable while we're doing whatever it is we're about, about to get into what are what are these different tactics and so why am i going to purposely make myself uncomfortable and there's a lot of potential why reasons for that um, including, hey, uh, more resiliency today, but more resiliency tomorrow and a better prepared body for the things that I can't account for or predict that might happen to me that will happen to all of us at some point. 
from my standpoint as a physician who's treated people for 20 years in clinics, I've gotten to observe that full span of life. I've seen people exit this world and their bodies, I've, and, I've, and I've seen people born into this world. I've done all of that care for years over tens of thousands of people. And because when I stepped into the flow of things, I inherited many patients who were already 60 or 70. So I saw them traverse the later years of their life. And I, and I can tell you that um, it's a long period of your life that you still live in that body. God takes you home at some point, but if he gives you the 80 years plus some that most people get right now, you're going to spend a long time in that body. And if you don't actually take advantage of the opportunities to express these potentials now when you can, you're going to have a very different experience. And I haven't yet sat with a person who is in their 70s and whatever bad habit or constellation of habit put them into a debilitated, chronically sick state, I reflected on, I'm glad I did it all, right? Like, I'm glad I did those things to myself. They all wish they could go back in time. Had I known, had I known that I was going to live 10 years feeling like this, I would have, I would have changed back then. I would have gone through the pain of change back then, whatever the habit may have been. It could have been smoking too much alcohol, lack of exercise, addicted to food. And so I'm listening to them say this to myself as a young doctor, and I'm thinking, well, this is like I've gotten in a time machine, right? This could just be me sitting in front of me. Well, and what would I be saying to myself? And I was like, okay, let's, let's not end up having this existent. We have a say in that. And then there's like the intrinsic immediate rewards because God's smart. He knows we're like weak creatures who aren't going to sign ourselves up for pain. And so he built in a response system to these tactics that while we go through the discomfort is certainly uncomfortable and it tests us. The other side of it is this release of endorphins and endogenous opioids and dopamine and serotonin where we feel so darn good, right? We get this great euphoria and this neurochemically backed sense of accomplishment and pride in ourselves that's solid and good that really adds to our confidence, our motivation, and, and just changes our life performance. So there's so many why reasons to begin to pattern hormesis into your life. You know, one of the things that you mentioned there that I don't think people really, I think we're getting better at it, hopefully, but we, you know, I've talked about a lot. It's the fact that the, the, the American healthcare system is really good at keeping people alive. We're good at, we have done, our, I mean, the, mar, the, the marvels of modern medicine are staggering, but the problem is just it goes back to one of my favorite stories. It's a sad story, but it's a it's one it's a favorite because it stuck with me, Gus. Uh, whenever I first moved to Tyler and bought my first real estate business, I bought it from a guy named Jim Daughtry, and his dad at the time I think was eighty six, and was he 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 got cancer, and he was in the final stages of his life. And I'll never forget one time I came into the office and I asked Jim. I said, "How's how's your dad doing? How's Jo?" And his response to me was, Jason, he's alive, but he's not living. Mm -hmm. And I, I think to myself, what a horrible, horrible place to find yourself. And there's so many people that are in that condition at the, in the later stages of their life. It's like that whole uh, deal that Peter Atia talks about how trying to squeeze that, those marginal years into as tight of, of, of a delta as possible between Okay, you're you're down, you're below 50% of what you can do, and then and then you're out. It's like no those you know, shortening that that time period of just not being able to function. And and so 
these things we know they're going to have. That's what's weird, man. I mean, like my, my uh, poor mom that had the stroke, you know, I see her and I, I'm, I'm like, I'm watching her and she hated to exercise in her, in her younger years. And she just didn't like to exercise. And now here she is. And because of the stroke, she's limited. And I look at her and I worry, I'm like, yeah, if she falls and breaks a hip, she's the, the chances of her surviving are less than her not. And it's like, and so, you know, whenever we get these, get to that age, man, and you know, better than I do, you're a physician after age 65. If your VO2 max is well below 30 and your bone density is bad and you just fall and break a hip because you and you haven't maintained good balance, then there's a good chance you're going to die of pneumonia. You're going to die of something because you're down and out from that that hip break. And so hopefully the things that we're talking about, while while you can still simulate the the resistance and and, and simulate the pain, you know, just as much as you can endure a little bit, then go ahead and get it because one day it's going to come in one form or another and you're either going to be ready for it or you're not. So, yeah. yeah. And there comes a time where you can't, you go back and undo it. You're, you're going to live with the pain you got period. Yeah. And even worse than possibly the fall down and die is the fall down and not recover and end up in a nursing facility oh. for 18 months and then you die. Right. I mean, and so I see this stuff and most people probably have some connection to someone who has these stories. I saw them. I saw them in people and patients and a clinic and family members. And it was enough to, uh, to give me the right kind of motivation to say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be in that state. Now, again, God might, you know, deal with, uh, there might be things we go through physically, infirmities and challenges that are just part of his plan for us to, um, develop us in other ways and, and spiritual strength. And that, if that's the case, that's the case. But it won't be because I looked back and said, well, I, I just put up with things that were really destructive to my body and because I didn't want to have to like quit them because it was going to be painful. Or I didn't at least try to engage in some degree of exposing it to my body to uncomfortable things just because I didn't like to have any discomfort at all. It won't be for those reasons. It'll be because it was the Lord's will. So let's talk about some of those things that we can do. And I want to, if you don't mind, I want to tackle one right away because I, it was one of my, I, I kind of got, was really surprised. I'd never heard of it until I took uh, Joel Green's, uh, I took a course uh, for immunity health with Joel Green, the author of the Immunity Code, and he, who's become uh, someone who's become a friend. And, you know, he, he talks about hypoxia as, or, you know, purposely induced hypoxia. Mm -hmm. And so as a form of, um, hormesis. And so what I would like to do is for you to give more of a, of an explanation of like what's going on. And here's, here's the only way I really do. And I, I don't do it that often, but it is something that I will try to remember to do is like when I'm working out and I want to, I want to provide a little self-induced oxidative stress, then what I'll, I'll like at the end of a workout, I'm pretty gassed. I'll do some pull-ups or some reps of some weight holding my breath. You know, so I'm, so I'm kind of creating like a little bit of hypoxia to try to build up my cardiovascular system and by inducing that resistance. But it, so let's, that's just one element I guess we could use for, um, hormesis as it relates to cardiovascular health and respiratory health. And then talk about some other things, Gus, that we can do like for our mind or our, for our muscles, for our, just our, our. Res resilience when it, in the of just just general discomfort from but like as it relates to to that one hypoxia 
am I doing the right thing? Is that a good thing to do as long as I don't overdo it? Or what are your thoughts? Um, no, you're doing a good thing. Um, and again, like as we talk through each of these different tactics, and we'll start with this one that has to do with really you're building more of a carbon dioxide tolerance than it is that you're learning to tolerate a low oxygen state. It's both, but it's one's more than the other. And we'll start with that one. But just so the listeners know, the kind of things we'll be talking about include, you know, this is a pretty unique one. This is probably one most of your listeners haven't even thought about. What? Like yeah, I just problem. learned about it within the last couple yeah. of years. Yeah. But we'll also be talking about the ones you probably have heard of, such as cold exposure, cold plunges, hot exposure, saunas, fasting of various lengths and sorts. That's a hormetic stressor. It's called nutritional stress. You're depriving your body of the usual influx it needs, and it has to use its own resources. Exercise is a hormetic stressor, right? And then there are exposures for your mind that we could call hormetic stressors in which you're basically training your mind to greater states of performance. So speaking back to, getting back to this one, um, so we, we did an episode on breath and we haven't done a deep dive into breath uh, tech tactics yet, but this is one that we would have brought up and it's one that'll come up in some of our fitness episodes too. And it's about the ability to build up what's called your carbon dioxide tolerance. So you exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide in your body, right? We breathe in oxygen from the air in our lungs. Uh, a byproduct of cellular respiration, cellular energy creation is carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide is carried by our uh, red blood cells, just like the red blood cells pick up the oxygen in the lungs and distribute it to our tissues out in our capillaries where we diffuse things. We pick up the carbon dioxide that's coming off the cells and we transport that and we breathe it out. So breathing in oxygen, breathing out carbon dioxide. Now there's an admixture of the two, so it's not like a 100%, 100%. Now, our body obviously is highly dependent upon oxygen. We will die quickly. It's the, you take away oxygen, we die you know, as fast as you can possibly die, right? Uh, based on like versus water and food and other such things. So we have very limited ability to maintain our life uh, in absence of oxygen. So our body has a way of sensing uh, what is our status and then driving a respiratory rate based on that status. But the sensors, that, especially the ones that go to our brain where we can consciously say, whoa, I feel short of breath, I need to breathe, um, are based on carbon dioxide levels. Not so much dropping oxygen, because it, it takes a long time actually to really drop the oxygen concentration of the blood, but the building up of the carbon dioxide. And as that carbon, and, and it's a more sensitive sensor, because again, it can take a while with the oxygen to drop meaningfully. And by the time it does, you're in real trouble. But carbon dioxide up fluctuation can be very quick. And so your brain, your, you have these sensors and they pick up the carbon dioxide level and they're set like a thermostat to a specific level of tolerance. And if that level goes up, you begin to feel short of breath, like air hunger. I need to breathe. Um, and so when we practice breath holds, we're basically overriding that signal, that carbon dioxide buildup that's just building to like force us to have to breathe, right? And so what happens with the improper breathing we discussed in a past episode is that people are breathing shallow and into their chest. So they are over, well, they're breathing rapidly and into their chest and shallow and they're over breathing. So they're blowing off a lot of carbon dioxide. They're not you know, getting any more oxygen, they're already saturated there. Um, and as they are blowing off that carbon dioxide, if they do that long enough over a period of time, the sensor for carbon dioxide detection adjusts down. And it says, oh, okay, this is where our normal state is. 
Now you hold your breath for a few seconds, carbon dioxide builds up past that and you're like, I got to breathe, right? And so you begin to limit how long you can go on a breath hold or in a low oxygen state. And that would, of course, affect VO2 max and a lot of other things as well. And so the, um, ultimately, the tactics of breath holds, which we could discuss in an a, in a, um, episode where we get into breath tactics, but, um, but both breath holds, which are practiced, and there's a lot of science to this. There's a specific formula for how to do it to maximize your ability to tolerate carbon dioxide, but also just practicing things like box breathing and extending the intervals, meaning that instead of it being four seconds, four seconds, four seconds, four seconds, you get to where it's 15 seconds, 15 seconds, 15 seconds, 15 seconds. Now you're taking one breath a minute, right? And so you're actually improving your ability to efficiently manage the oxygen you have, which I'm about to talk about because that's important, while you also manage your ability to tolerate the carbon dioxide that's building up to a higher level. Over time, if you keep practicing this stuff, you begin to reset the carbon dioxide centers, not to where they originally were. You can actually reset them to higher levels which you can then end up tolerating much longer periods before you freak out. Because when that carbon dioxide gets to a specific level and it triggers your sensor, there is no way to willpower over it. You freak out. You can have full-on panic attacks. They've done these experiments where they make they basically have them infuse them with carbon dioxide. And they people who've gone through those experiences say it's the worst experience of their life. They go into an abject panic terror. I mean, I equate it to maybe it feels like what waterboarding feels like or something like yeah, that. Yeah, know? I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, and so you can't, whatever that carbon dioxide sensor, wherever that's set for you, once you've triggered it, there is no like saying, oh, no, I can, I can make it a little bit longer. You're done. Now, there is a range where you can, and that's where you're forcing yourself. You're, you've got discomfort. You've got air hunger. You'd like to breathe, but I'm not going to yet. So there's a certain point where you can continue to willpower and go deeper and deeper. But then when it crosses over, as it inevitably builds, you're done. You're freaking out if you can't get to air, right? And so it's really fascinating. Now, on the other hand, what is your body doing with oxygen? It's using it this is way overgeneralized or simplified, but you're basically combusting oxygen and carbon together to make cellular ATP, cellular energy, and uh, doing that mostly in your mitochondria. But your body also has, that's the, your aerobic respiratory function, not just lung function, cellular respiration is cellular energy production. And cellular respiration it can happen both through aerobic and anaerobic pathways aerobic is you've got oxygen and you can continue to combust that oxygen with carbon and it's efficient and you can create a lot of energy from it and you can go a long ways down the road doing that. Anaerobic is where not in the presence of oxygen, you're actually taking and splitting these uh, carbohydrate molecules and still creating ATP, but not nearly as much. Okay. So you can't sustain your life anaerobically. You'll die as we know. But you can deepen your anaerobic fitness. Uh, you know, CrossFit workouts are great aerobic and anaerobic training regimens, right? You're training both of those capacities. And so we can improve our body's ability to, one, efficiently manage that cellular respiration process, that combustion, by having healthier mitochondria and more mitochondria. And we can actually do a better job of efficiently managing that process. But we can also train our anaerobic system so that we can go deeper into a state of low oxygen and still maintain some level of function. It's very painful training, as you know. It hurts. <laughs> yeah, right. But it, it is really important types of training. So 
most of the time, what you're really working on is that CO2 tolerance, though, and everything else is coming out for the ride. So you can do training while with breath holds. You can do breath hold training specifically. You can swim and just keep doing more strokes with your head underwater and then coming up for less air. And then you can also um, do uh, just exercise. And this is one that I re commonly recommend to people because it's a, not as painful. You'll experience some air hunger, but you don't have the more intense pain. Simply using nasal breathing only through moderate intensity exercise, right? And so you don't, when you exceed your ability to maintain with just the airflow through your nose, in and out through the nose, just in and out through the nose, you do not revert and start breathing through your mouth. You have to scale yourself back. You stick with the nose. You recover if you were feeling a lot of air hunger because maybe you just climbed a hill and now you're like, Mm -mm. And you don't open that mouth. You slow down and you recover your breath back to normal just through the nose. And you don't like, you know, depressurize the system by just, oh, I'm going to go ahead and get some air. You'll be tempted to do it. But if you just consistently do some degree of moderate exercise with nasal breathing only, you will, you will keep deepening that CO2 tolerance. Now, another benefit is that they've proven uh, that the movement of oxygen into tissue, the, the taking an oxygen molecule off of the hemoglobin, the proteins that are carrying it within a red blood cell, you have to unbind it. That actually that movement and moving into tissue is greatly enhanced in the presence of higher carbon dioxide. So you'll actually move oxygen more effectively from your red blood cell into the tissue that needs the oxygen if you can maintain a baseline status of carbon dioxide that's actually higher right? Proportionally compared to a lower state. So that's another reason to do it because now you're going to actually exchange more oxygen in the process and be able to go further and deeper and do more. I mean, that might be more than your average listener wanted, but that's- That, that, last, that last comment. So does that impact my VO2 max? Is that what that's- that, Yes. That's in the end, every way that you can improve the efficiency of this system and its capacity will improve your VO2 max. And so VO2 max is really split. And I'm not a VO2 max expert, I want to be clear, but there are three legs to the VO2 max stool. There are probably more, but there are three big ones. Cardiopulmonary function, the actual heart pumping and the movement of air through the lungs. The movement and people with normal lungs, not they don't have chronic lung diseases. It's rarely the actual air that's the limiting factor. Typically, we have plenty of oxygen coming into our bloodstream. So that's not what caps us off. The heart has to be able to pump effectively and push it through the vascular system. And the vascular system has to respond to signals like nitric oxide to dilate and open up so you can deliver more blood flow into tissues that are under high demand. And that's cardiopulmonary VO2 max. And then there's metabolic VO2 max. That's actually the cellular level reactions happening within the mitochondria and the combusting of fats and carbon and oxygen and the clearing of the exhaust from all that combustion. That affects VO2 max because if you bog that system down, you're just going to not be able to sustain. You're not going to be able to keep utilizing oxygen effectively because your mitochondria can't process anymore. And then you have muscle fiber VO2 max, which is driven specifically by the activation of muscle fibers and their response to the training itself. And we have genetics for all those factors. And we can be, we could have a, compared to elite athletes, what would be considered a let's say a very strong VO2 max potential, not elite. So we probably are never going to have the same VO2 max as a Lance Armstrong, even if we trained all day long, um, every day, but we could have very, very good VO2 max. We could perform well, but let's just say genetically, I have very strong uh, metabolic VO2 max potentials and very strong muscle VO2 max potentials, but eh, cardiopulmonary is so-so. 
then the best way to train VO2 max is to go train the muscle and focus on optimizing the metabolic. It's not really, the money's not in pushing the cardiopulmonary. It's just sort of like there's a set point there that you're going to run up against your weak spot. Now, if you're going to have one, that would be your weak spot because as long as your heart is beating normally and your lungs are functioning normally, that's not usually going to be your limiting factor. It's usually at the cell level, your ability to take those substrates, convert them to energy, clear exhaust, and keep the whole system moving forward and clear lactic acid out and all that. So one of the things I worry about right now, Gus, because, you know, I'm, I've added this Silfit nonsense to my regular training protocol. That's hard training right there. (laughs) But, uh, but one of the things that, because I'm so wiped, I don't do my VO2 max specific training the way I did. Like yesterday I did it through my Ben Greenfield workout. I do through the ladder app, which in, I mean, it was, it just wasn't that hard. I mean, the bottom line is because that, that app is more for universal use. And so I'm like going from a zone one for two minutes. Then I went zone two, I guess, for a minute. And then I hit a zone five for 30 seconds and a zone uh, seven or just an all out sprint for 10 seconds. And then you go back down two minutes and and we cycled that like four times, which just isn't that demanding for me, as opposed to the more prescriptive VO2 max work of four minutes you know, four minutes off and then four minutes zone five, four minutes off. Yeah. Four minutes, that's, that's the real deal. And I don't, that's the, and that's the one nobody wants to do. Cause it's so, oh, cool. it's, it's an absolute <laughs> beat down. And cause it, it, but it, I like to do it because I feel like, okay, that's the one I know I'm getting my money's worth, but because I'm so tired from the, the, the seal fit training and the regular stuff, I haven't been doing that as much. So my question for you is this. So a lot of what I'm doing, is high intensity work obviously it's short and it's it's strength so a lot of my uh the taxing on my cardiovascular system is coming in the form of doing high volume of heavy weight you know so just a lot of deadlifts with short breaks into kind of a typical kind of crossfit type hit workout um am i getting a vo2 max boost from that sort of workout yeah, yes, you are. In fact, personally, and again, we can at some point sequester one of the experts in this area to to show all my ignorance, <laughs> you know, but I'm a generalist and in a general way, looking at the different components of VO2 max and those potentials to me, again, as I mentioned earlier, training that simulates CrossFit like training, right? Rapid pace movements where your cardiopulmonary system is under enormous demand. If anybody ever thought that Oh, well, CrossFit's not like hard, like the way going out and running distances, go into a CrossFit gym and do one wide and see, I mean, you're going to, your, your lungs burn, you feel you're bent over, you can't stand up You're you know, and I want to be clear, I'm I'm not a regular participant in CrossFit. So I'm not suggesting that that's like, I'm not here from a CrossFit platform for myself, but I do some workouts that are like CrossFit design type workouts. So when you're, especially pull-ups, push-ups, burpees, and squats, and when you're pushing heavier weights and you sustain that over time, you've got the cardiopulmonary system that's being trained, you've got the cellular systems that are being trained, you've got the muscle fibers that are being trained, how to respond and maintain function, and then ultimately that mitochondrial density factor that has to go up because you're like, your body's like, oh my gosh, we may have to do this again. We're going to have to be able to create more energy. And so- as you add more mitochondria, you can process more oxygen and carbon and create more energy, right? Like it just yeah. is. So I personally think that from the standpoint, and I think that when you get into four minute on, four minute off intervals, 
Yeah, the average person could go out and incorporate that once a week into their workouts. And it's not long. It's just the long, the total workout is not long, but each four minute interval, it's the longest four minutes of your life. It right? is the longest of your life. It is yeah, such I a mean, you're sitting there, you set the timer, you think I can do anything for that amount of time and you push yourself to your limit. To, you know, you're going to have to slow down some. You're not going to maintain that same pace for four minutes. And you're looking down, like thinking, this is hurting. And it's like, it's been two minutes. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then you look down again because it's been, okay, this has been a while now. I'm not going to keep looking. It's been two and a half minutes. You're like, I can't believe I got to do this another minute and a half. And then you spend the next four minutes like doing your lighter recovery, dreading, dreading, dreading the next four minutes. I know that that trains VO2 max. We know it trains VO2 max. But I think for your average untrained person, right, who hasn't like, who's like, what is VO2 max? I think that you're going to get a lot more yield out of just going and beginning to incorporate body weight, fast, fast uh, cycled body weight circuits where you're activating muscle, cardiopulmonary and training mitochondria. So there's, uh, of course, he was advertising for it, but he had, he had tested and I trust his uh, expertise, Michael Gervais, who mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, I guess he's a sports psychologist. That's his, his deal is mostly mindset, the psychology of sport. Great, great guy. I like listening to his podcast. And, he was talking about this new bike where they've come out where the, the deal with it is it's an AI generated resistance based on, I guess, your probably your FTP. I don't know what all the, the inputs were, but it's a real high resistance for a very short period of time. I think it's like a minute on, minute off, like five minutes. And the results of hitting VO2 max and mitochondria health are just outstanding just in a and, and glycogen depletion he's probably unless yeah. it's unless it's a new version on the marketplace he's talking about the carol bike that which sounds is, right yeah that's it that's yeah. it that's yeah it, right. it's six minutes it it's six minutes when you know if what you're chasing after and it's okay i mean i'm chasing after these things are very specific improvements in you know functional measurable measurable elements it's uh-huh. genius because you, okay. you're knocking it out in six minutes and it works i've done it at a conference i did a sample ride and you're like it's crazy how like wasted your your thighs are from that oh relatively cool. yeah and and so it's it's great technology for people who just don't have the time yeah. you know and so i'm a big fan of this type of tech for especially the person who's just not gonna go do it um i still think that for those who can go ride a bike outside in the sunshine and you know and uh, all that other kind of stuff is there's just other benefits to doing it not so much from the standpoint of trying to hit the scientific metrics but just trying to engage the body in real life so all right um what do you think about these things i heard ben greenfield talking about it i don't have one i need one because one i'm a real bad mouth breather i mean it's, i always have like a little bit of stuffiness because of allergies or whatever not an excuse. I've tried to do more nasal breathing. That's what I tried to make my primary source, but I'll just, it's one of my weaknesses. Um, and so I'm thinking about getting one of these mouth, these, re, these breath restrictors. Yep. Your mouth. Have you ever used one of those? And what do you thought? Yeah. I mean, it's hard and, but I think it'd be really good for you. Like okay. it's a way of like getting there and just kind of making yourself do it. But yeah, the, uh, and they have different ones. Some have just a smaller slit that narrows them out of airflow. And, um, and then some are the, like the mask that goes over your face and you can set different filtration levels so that it just makes it harder to pull in air forces you and you're one forcing your body to do the type of training we've been talking about, but two, you can also train your rescue respiratory musculature because it has to work harder to like, to try and pull that air through that resistance. Okay. All right. So the takeaway from this segment of, uh, of the, of the discussion today, I think is if you can practice 
a little bit of strategic hypoxia, then you can actually um, increase your capacity for uh, carbon dioxide, correct? Yep. So, and that's really what we're doing. It's not like being able to breathe harder or faster or just, it's really, it's, it's what we're talking about here is you're increasing your capacity to, to hold more carbon dioxide before your, before that lead, before that regulator says, all right, done, no more. You've got to, you got to suck some wind or you're going to, you're going to die. So, mm -hmm. and, and that is good just because it allows us to go longer, go further on less, uh, than what we normally would. So. And yeah, that's we oxygen more efficiently. We're training our body into a more resilient, capable state. Uh, you know, I mean, there's so many different benefits. And I get if you're taking a walk with your best friend so you can have a conversation and that's the point of the walk, then go have your conversation. But when you're doing your own walks outside, uh, I tell people, enjoy it. Make it contemplative and meditative and all of that. But if you are trying to walk for exercise, keep your mouth shut. Nasal yep. breathe only. And then don't allow yourself to breathe through your mouth. You hit hills. Walk them at whatever pace you can sustain. Pick up your pace. It's amazing how much cardiopulmonary fitness you can build just through walking and only breathing through your nose. And like without having to have done, followed a training program, you keep walking the same sections of your neighborhood, but make sure if you can, you add hills or you just keep increasing your pace while only nasal breathing. And actually a lot of the science in this area, people in really good books, and we, we'll do a whole episode on this and talk about the breath holding test you do every morning to score yourself and the proven like actual exercises you can do to improve that score over time. Um, because it's really easy to do, but what they, a lot of people who've come to, uh, respiratory specialists who are in this space to say, I've got to be able to get a little more out of my system because these are high performance athletes. They do their evaluation and then not, they don't give them higher intensity training programs. They actually back them up and have them train carbon dioxide tolerance. And they're like sitting there, like having to go slow and stay in zone two and only breathe through their nose. And they're like, oh my gosh, this has got to be killing my times. I'm not going to be able. And then when they return to the track or where the race or whatever, they're, they're running faster, further, harder. <laughs> and it's like, so you're, you're actually training a more capable system through this. And it's not that uncomfortable. Yes, you'll have periods on your walks, where you're walking a steeper hill, you'll feel some air hunger and you'll be tempted to just start breathing through your mouth. Just slow down to whatever pace you can maintain and keep breathing through your nose. And then when you really feel it and it's a little bit uncomfortable, make yourself recover only through your nose. It's so good for you. And it only lasts a few seconds and then you're fine. Awesome. All right. So where do we want to go next? What else do we need to? Well, so, so we'll do an entire episode fasting, fasting for longevity versus fasting for weight loss versus fasting for just daily rhythm, time-restricted feeding. But we'll just mention real quickly that fasting and calorie restriction is a form of hormesis, right? That it allowing your body to have to operate off of its reserves and putting what we call nutritional stress on your cells is really, really good for your body. Even you know, if it's one day a week where you either just chose to truly fast and only drink water or water and tea and coffee, not have any calories, or maybe you just cut your calories down to under even a thousand if you've been eating 2,500. Now your body has less energy to work with. If you do it consistently enough over time, your body begins to perceive that the environment can't support things as they are. 
what it begins to do is what you do in your home when things get tight. It goes and cleans stuff up, right? It gets rid of clutter. It's like, I don't need this anymore. I don't need that subscription plan. I don't need like this. We can sell this stuff on Craigslist or whatever, right? Like you do a purge and cleanup and you come out of it and then things get better, but you're just healthy, right? Like you're, yeah, and that's what essentially is happening in a human body when you create nutritional stress. Uh, the damaged uh, cell components that are just hanging around because there's no pressure to get rid of them. They're just sitting around there glutting things up. They're gone. Like, we don't need you and you're, you're consuming energy. You got to go, you know, <laughs> and stuff. And so it's really wonderful to put the body under periods of nutritional stress. And that could be some type of sustained lower calorie diet. And if you need to lose weight, that's great for you. It can be punctuated fast, so whatever duration you want. And again, we'll do a special segment on fasting and the different strategies for fasting, depending on the goal that you want to achieve. But I personally think that just simply cutting down on eating, being calorie restricted more than, you know, feasting and potentially having days where you just eat very, very little, if nothing at all, is one of the best forms of hormetic stress for the human system that plays a big role in so many aspects of your health, metabolic health, blood glucose dysregulation, detox, uh, every gut health, all of it, but that also sets you up for freedom in how you approach food because we've talked about how our modern day food supply has become a real major source of disease for us. And as you train your body's capacities, not just the good things that happen from that lack of energy and your body's natural response, you train your ability to confidently continue through time and space without having had the food you thought you needed. And so it's no longer freaking you out or you know how to, you know how to deal with your moment of boredom or restlessness and go do something else by, uh, instead of like going to the cupboard and stuff like that. There's so many other benefits to it. So I will personally love that. And for most, most Americans, right? If I, you know, hormesis for me starts with two main categories for the vast majority of people that I come into contact with <laughs> nutritional stress, right? But getting good nutrients and movement exercise, right? Because that's the, those are the two big ones that most people are just not taking advantage of. So what is it that the Okinawans call it whenever they only eat to 80% full? I can't remember. Do you, do you remember what that is? I cannot remember the name of that term, yeah. but now you've bugged me. So I'm going to have to like, look it up while I talk about it. So essentially what they do is they only eat to 80% full. Now, I don't know how they determine whether they're 80% full or whatever. That's not the point. But they never, like, they do the exact opposite of us in America. We don't feel like we're quote unquote full. Until, I mean, our guts just poking out or, or I think, I wonder if America invented the all-you-can-eat buffet. I got to believe we did. And is it, is it Harahachi boot? There you go. That's it. That's it. That's it. Harahachi. They, mm -hmm. and it's essentially where they, they never eat past 80% full. At least that's what, that's what that's, that's the indicator there. And that's the, that's, they're like the king of the blue zones, right? They live longer. And so. When it comes to this restricting eating for a while, do you suggest, Gus, or does it even matter where you are doing the restriction? Whether it does it have does it is it in time restricted feeding? Is it fasting? Is it just eating less at each meal? Is it taking your totally like journaling your caloric intake for a week and then reducing it by twenty percent? Like, or does it even matter as long as you just start eating less? And 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 by the way, in, in my last question. Uh, and this rambling long question is, 
how do you gauge hormesis when it comes to restriction? Is it just based on I'm hungry, so therefore I'm having to resist eating? Is it you know what is the what is the actual you know determine it's, it's not that one um most of the time, right? It, it, for unfortunately for most individuals who are again new to this and if they have excess body fat um and they you know know that they, this is an area where they need to change which is more than half of our country well over more than half our country that is in this state um and it's not their fault they gotten trained to eating habits and fooled by you know food engineers that were designed to try to sell them products and get them eating as much as they can so i, I don't want the consumer to feel like it's their fault that they lack self-control that they or, you know, just or you know, uh, please forgive me for these terms if they sound inflammatory, but they're just a fat pig or something like that. You know, these kinds of things that people, they tell themselves, because I know because they've told me that's how they feel about themselves. And I have to spend a lot of time dispelling all that, that they're got all kinds of willpower in other domains of their life and that they never really had a chance on this one because it started getting entrained into their brain um, and their hunger signals when they were just one and two and three years old. They don't need to blame themselves for it, but they have to know what they're up against, right? You've got to know what you're up against. And so what's happened is that our on all the levels of appetite signal and hunger sensing, they've all been disrupted, right? So our satiety signals are not accurate because of the way we change the textures of and the nutrient values of food. And the fact that we're often consuming foods that we can eat large mouthfuls of very quickly with appealing textures that make us want to keep gulping and gulping it down. We don't have to chew it very hard. We don't have to like really pre-digest it in our mouth. doesn't take much time to swallow it. So we can over distend our stomachs before our sensors and our gut have even had a chance to say, hey, what did we get here? The fact that the most important sensor isn't the fullness sensor. How big is your gut? That's the last one coming in after it's like, well, we got to stop. We're going to get hurt here. But the actual nutrient sensors, especially for amino acids and fatty acids, and then we're eating a bunch of carbs and other stuff and not actually getting those nutrients to the gut. And then all the hedonistic eating because of the dysregulation of our pleasure response to food. And so people are just up against it with this one. And you can't really count on your own system to guide you unless you've already trained that system and gained mastery over it. I do think that with you know, knowing that you may have to baby step this, like we talked about before, that working towards pure fasting, not not excluding water and minerals and things like that, right? Like including water and minerals, but working towards pure fasting is the best way to begin to retrain that system because you have to, if you've made a commitment, and again, a fast might be that if you've been used to consuming food from 6.30 in the morning until 9.30 at night, the fast is now that you're going to stop at eight at night and make it to 10 the next morning. And that it's not really a fast, but we'll call it a fast. You're making progress and you're learning how to endure the last hour and a half before bedtime where it's not typically hunger driving, it is boredom and restlessness and stuff like that. So you're learning how to train your mind into other things you can do to kind of settle that. And then in the morning, you're just having to like push through. If you're a person whose circadian biology would push you to morning eating based on what was called intestinal peptide production and things of that sort, then you might have a pretty intense hunger wave in the morning where you feel like you need to fill your stomach with something, but that will pass quickly if you ignore it, especially if you go exercise and release adrenaline and cortisol, you'll end up overriding that signal. You won't be hungry at all because the body is designed, even if it's hungry, if you've got physical stress on you to say, you know, this is not the time to get distracted by my hunger. 
we got to move. We got to, you know, go do something else. And there's other tools that you can use to do it. But you begin to be able to observe your own hunger, your own patterns. When you observe that most of the hunger waves that hit you or cravings or urges that are as powerful, you know, are very powerful, are very temporary. If you can make it past 15 minutes, maybe 30 at max, it's going to be gone. It's not going to dominate your consciousness any longer. And then you'll have the freedom on the other side to be like, oh, wow, that was great. I didn't have to do that. And the other thing is then beginning to learn the signals your body is sending you. When is it really hungry? When is it saying it's time to eat? And most of us won't know that until we've gotten to like the lean version of us. That lean version of me might be very different than the lean version of a different listener. There, you know, my, my lean version is carrying only 20 pounds of total body fat on my body. Somebody else's might be 40 pounds. That's fine, right? But the, because that's based on genetics and how the body senses energy reserves. But once you hit that level, and then your body is real more closely like saying, whoa, we've only got this much excess energy. It's only going to last this as long. That's when you're going to start learning what's real hunger. You know? And even then, it's not that powerful, not until you really compromise those reserves and get to really low body fat. Do you end up in a position where it's a, you know, really overpowering you? So I personally think any kind of cutting back, but people do it all the time. And if they don't log it, then they just end up compensating. They don't know it, but they do. They eat more of this or that or a few things. It's so remarkable because when, you know, we have our body composition episodes and then we had people who read the ebook and they start off at maybe under 1200 calories. And then, you know, and I tell people, if you've never done it, then you need to get a food app and track. You need to log it all because it's very easy to go over and they'll cut down to what they thought was not much, but they'll look at the calories on their supplements. Fatty acids will have some calorie units. They look at you know, they look up the few nuts that they ate and they begin to account for it. And even when they felt like they cut back their eating pretty substantially, they're still at like 1800 calories. They're not even at 1200 yet. And they're like, oh my gosh. And then they begin to realize how much we're over consuming all the time, which is horrible for our bodies. Horrible. Doesn't know what to do with this excess energy. Um, and so, I mean, it does, but there's a point to where it's like, it doesn't. Um, and so I think that you learn a lot from one, you track, and then you begin to cut back. And so I actually recommend that whatever gets people on the path, if the easiest thing for you to do is work on a time-restricted feeding window, but not think about what you're going to eat once you're in your feeding window, then do that. If it's easier for you to maintain a 12-hour feeding window, because that just feels better, but just to cut back on total food volume, do that. Find your way there somehow. Now, once you've found your way to a good balance point, that's when you start experimenting with, well, I might do a 24-hour fast or a 72-hour fast, you know, and I'm going to really start using that for greater levels of capability in my body and greater health benefits long-term. So, and I'll just, a little encouragement to the listener out there, whenever you start down this path, and if you'll just get over the hump of restricting your eating to a certain degree, you'll find that... um like I, I, speaking from personal experience, which is anecdotal, I get it, but man, Gus, I am rarely ever hungry. I'm just not hungry that often. I do get hungry and I do have, you know, I, I, I eat. There are times when I, I overindulge. So it's not like I'm pure on this, but for the most part, by and large, I'm, I'm very active. I mean, I, I talk ad nauseum about my training schedule on this podcast. And I'm just not that hungry. So the encouragement to the listener is this, that don't feel like in those early stages when you're adjusting, sure, your body's going to make some adjustment and it's going to tell you you're hungry when you're not. That's what we've talked about 
those uh, essential amino acids where they come into play at your body saying, Hey, I want some, I want some nutrients. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain that I want this through uh, a hunger pang as opposed to, because the body doesn't have a way to whisper to you, Hey, I need some, some amino acids right now. Uh, but you just don't, you're not that hungry if you do these things. And so I think that that re- again, and what it does now, this is purely a mind shift. I don't know if there's any science behind this whatsoever. But whenever I do find myself hungry, I almost kind of enjoy it because then I think to myself, my body's kind of cleaning house. This is good. Uh, when was the last time I ate? Okay, it was 12 hours ago. Oh, well, let's just extend this on out. Like if you're traveling or something, you're going to an airport and you start to think things like, all right, if I could just go three hours, if I could just wait till I land, as opposed to eating some overpriced garbage in this airport, well, I've just crushed a 16-hour fast. And you start to manipulate time and travel and and activities to meet with your better decision-making scheduling and your your desire to uh, restrict your eating in such a way that it almost, you, you, you start to game it. And I think there's a, when you can get a gaming component to it, and that's what I've done with my fast a lot. Like I'll, I'll set it up, like if I'm traveling, and also you start to like what you said about when you start journaling, you start to really be cautious. Like there are a lot of things I just don't eat anymore that are like little snacks and stuff that used to be like little indulgences, but I'm like, that's such a waste. I just, I'm not going to waste my calories on that. And I love them. I mean, like, for example, Halloween just came and and went. And so all the fun size, uh, candy bars dude i could crush some fun size milky ways like you like it's my job but i'm just not going to do that jim and i were talking last night about how i used to love oreos uh dunked in milk uh, to the extent gus when i was in high school man i used to like like you do a bowl of cereal i would put a whole glass of oreos or a whole bunch of uh, get a glass full of oreos <laughs> and then pour milk over it and eat it with a spoon like cereal and <laughs> And they have a, they actually have a cereal called Cookie Crisp. It's basically that. I love Cookie Crisp. Oh, so good soggy Cookie Crisp. So good. I love it. But it's like now I'm like, of all the things I could waste my calories on, I'm going to be more selective. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't always eat bad. I but eat- also, yeah, but also once you're optimal and you've done this and you know you have command of it, then, and if you just ended up sitting down with a kid somewhere and he pours you a bowl of Cookie Crisp, you could eat it. Yep, exactly. You know what? I'm going to have a bowl of cookie crisp. It'll be fine. I'm not going to hurt my body because I eat a bowl of cookie crisp. Yeah, exactly. A bowl every day, then that's questionable. So you get a lot of freedom on the other side. And we've talked about that extensively. And then there's a healthy pride in knowing you're in command of this. You trust your body. You have confidence in your body and its energy systems. I don't have to eat. And uh, you mentioned it earlier, like not eating something really bad just because you feel like you have to eat. There was a funny encounter I had in my office, and this was, and what you also mentioned about reinterpreting the signal of hunger, I wrote about that in my book. I didn't have any science behind it at the time. I just had a lot of mindset understanding and a lot of the psychology understandings, and I had a lot of anecdotes of patients who I had taught, hey, interpret a hunger pain as this is the, the, the feeling of your body consuming its own fat. It's what you've wanted to happen. Like When that's happening, you know that's got to be the case if you can push through that. And they would resonate with it. They'd be like, that really helps me. It's changed the entire thing. I thought, oh, okay, that's good. And I wrote about it in the book. I got so much feedback from people about how that just changed everything for them. And this guy 
he's he he was this was not this was back 10 years ago and i'm teaching these concepts to my patients to lose weight and he comes into my clinic and he needed to lose 30 or 40 pounds and he's lost about 20 and he's really doing well and he's using time restricted feeding and he's cut back on portions and he's doing a lot of the things we talk about and i'm proud of him he said yeah, you know, we're doing pretty good. I mostly just cut the junk out. But, you know, the other night I, I, I went to work and then I coached my son's baseball team and then we had to late practice and then it's 8.30, 9 o'clock at night and like we have neither of us have eaten. And he said, so, you know, we drove through the drive through you know, and he, uh, and he said, you know, like we have to eat. And I looked at him and I said, well, your son does, but do you? And he was like, well, don't. And I said, well, did you? Like, was your body out of energy? Do you have no more fat to consume on your body? And he was like, and he knew that he knew I wasn't being condescending or mocking. I was just, I'm like, I agree with your son. Like, it might not be the best quality meal, but your son is skinny and athletic and he's growing and he's like gone a long stretch without food. Yeah, you got to give him some food, get him some calories in his body. That's fine. Yeah, I'm not going to argue about that. But did you have to eat that food? What would have happened if you just waited till the morning? He's like, you're right. He's like, I would have been fine. I didn't have to eat. And it was. It was just in his mind that if he didn't have that evening meal, he was violating some principle that was really important. And he had a breakthrough. He was like, you're right. Next time I realize I don't have to eat. I might carry a small packet of some you know, organic nuts with me or something like that. So if I really feel I need something, I've got something, but I don't have to eat just because people say it's time to eat. It was funny. It's fun. Yeah. The whole mindset thing, like I do that now. I used to be back, back whenever I worked in a more corporate setting years ago, it, it, there would be free food. And it's so hard to pass up good free food because our mind tells us it's there. It's good. It's free. You got to take advantage. The, the all, all, all bets are off. The rules are out the window. We think, no, that's just you. Uh, you don't pass up free, good food yep. until I finally started thinking to myself. I am doing more damage by eating than not. It's you, it's that risk reward. And then also there's kind of this, uh, this scarcity mindset or a fear of loss. That's so funny when we think about it. Like if we go somewhere like to a, to get your oil or tires changed or something, they've got the free donuts sitting out. Mm -hmm. We think to ourselves, oh my gosh, I mean, there's donuts. I got to eat. You want them. But for me, it's more of like, I just got to take advantage of free donuts. You know, I mean, I, it's like going to a conference. I got to have the free pens and the paper and the envelope openers. I just got to have those. I got to have all the free USB storage devices. I need, I need those, you know, no, <laughs> it's just junk. You don't need. It's like, I can, it's when you stop and go, wait a minute, I can go buy a new USB store, a thumb drive anytime I want. I can go right now as an adult and buy two dozen donuts, sit down and crush every one of them. I don't have to eat them at the gas station or the tire chase place. It's just, it's so it's our minds are just so wired in certain ways. So I think that that has a lot to, you're, you're so right. The, the cognitive aspect to how we view controlling these, these, these moments is so important, which brings me to one of the things that I know we talked about, we're going to talk a little bit about exercise just how that in and of itself is hormesis we were you know we're putting our body through some stress so we can talk there uh, we can wrap up on that but one of the things i want to make sure we don't leave without doing is the mental hormesis and the training for focus training you know putting our brain through and i know that you work a lot with patients who are overcoming stroke and and different things or just 
somebody like your buddy Jason, who if he sees a squirrel going there, he can't not look. And so what are some things we can do to sharpen our yeah. mind? What kind of stressors can we add that are positive ones? Yeah. Can we pause? Absolutely. I need to turn some lights on. It's dark in here now. Okay. I'm yeah, it's a, a great point because actually we've spent a lot of time just talking about with the nutritional stress approach and the breath, like the carbon dioxide tolerance. A lot of our conversation has been mindset, right? Like how do we develop a stronger mind? Because it takes a strong mind to put up with the discomfort of these interventions. And, you know, we would have never had to work on the mental side 10,000 years ago. This was just built into our life. We had to go hungry. We had to move. We had to keep our strength. We had to like deal with injuries. We had to deal with cold. We had to deal with heat. Like, you know, we had to be short of breath at various times and maximize VO2 max. Like that was just life, right? And then now the time we live in, we actually have to make ourselves do this stuff because we can just exist without having to do any of it. Never run out of food. Never have to move much. Never have to be cold. Never have to be hot. You know, um, or almost never. And so, yeah, let's jump into the mental stuff because it's critical. It's training the mind is how you train yourself to be able to do these other things. And we will talk about what we'll do because these topics stretch out every time we think we're going to cover a certain amount and then we can't. Yeah, all physical activity is a form of hormesis, cold and heat exposure. But we'll do a, maybe next week, we'll do an episode where we talk about sauna and cold plunges, the benefits and how to program those in. Uh, dose duration and everything like that. So the mental piece, though, um, first and foremost, so there's ways of training your brain to get control over your own brain. Now, a lot of this gets into the mindfulness space or the meditation space. People have a hard time being still and just being in their own mind because it's hard. It's one and of the hardest things I do, Gus. I mean, to sit yeah. out, like to sit down just today and have my green monster without having a podcast going, a book going, Ben Shapiro. I, I, it is so freaking hard. And I'm supposed to be the improve always and always guy. I'm supposed to have this stuff. I'm supposed to be a ninja at this stuff. And I can tell you right now, going for a walk without my headphones in or with my, my earbuds in, it is so freaking hard. So yes, amen to that. It is so hard. Yeah. And just like we talked about with the eating, it might start with just getting rid of the excesses and just trying to get back to normal eating before you go down to low calorie or like calorie restricted eating. In this case, it might be that you choose an hour where you're still going to be doing something, but you turn off the screens or you whatever. Like you, it, There's a lot of different ways to begin to try, retrain your brains. What does it need to direct its attention to? Right, Attention is like one of our most valuable commodities. Right. What we give our attention to really almost ends up defining where our focus existence. goes, energy flows. Yeah. That's what Tony Robbins. Yeah. Said. yeah. And there's right now, there's constant. If you live in the USA in this time and probably most of modern countries, there's all kinds of people who want to get your attention because they have something they want to sell you or they want, they want your power or influence or money or something. And so that's what you're up against every single day. Uh, all technology products. They could be very good ones, ones that are going to actually benefit your life, but they're trying to get your attention and keep your attention. Commercials, television ads, television shows, all of it, right? It's just all, all day long is typically one big attention grab from the corporate marketplace of America to, or the global corporate marketplace to you. And if you let them keep your attention, eventually your mind is trained by them, right? Like you're, you could 
back out of your life and we could all do this. It's a healthy exercise and look at all of our daily little habits, everyone, you know, and what we do, what we want to do and, you know, actually do. And where did it come from? Right. Where did I, where did I develop this habit? You know, what the bowl of cookie crisp in the morning or in the evening or the whatever stimulant or, you know, this, that or the other. And I'm not saying they're bad habits necessarily, just every habit. And a lot of them you're going to realize you didn't choose for yourself at all. They were sold to you by somebody and have roped you in. And many of them do involve a product you purchased. You know? Now, if that happens to be a, a, a strength machine and you train with it and it's a good one, then great. You know? I'm happy about that. I think but you said every, that we're yeah. living in the matrix. Guys. Yeah, we are living in the matrix. Living and, in the matrix. And you want to have your own mind, right? And you want to have the ability to choose what you really want for your life according to your desires, not what the, again, not, I'm not saying they're all bad, but what corporations want you to choose for their agenda and purposes. So training the mind, recapturing your focus and not letting it become scattered by all these things is incredibly challenging and hard. It's the hardest thing to do. And it's also the key to everything that we talk about on this podcast that involves any kind of change whatsoever. And so you can begin and start, you can start with one minute a day. And then two minutes a day and three minutes a day. And your starting place may literally be, you're going to go take the walk and you're going to leave your phone behind, right? Um, and you're not going to listen to a podcast or a sports feed or a news feed or even music. You are just going to be there in your own head <laughs> uh, for that period of that walk or to sit in a quiet room for 15 minutes with no stimulation whatsoever other than just you and your thoughts. And I get that a lot of people's thought life is not good. And that's, we might really get into that path with John Deloney when we get him on the show, right? Because, sure. yeah, people don't want to be alone with their thoughts because they're, maybe they're self-persecuting you know, and blaming themselves or shaming themselves or feeling guilty, or maybe they're, they'll immediately deal with all the cravings and lusts and things that drive them that they don't want to be driving them or their frustrations with other people and judging and all that kind of stuff. And so I could get that, but... You can't recreate your thought matrix if you don't understand where it's coming from and if you don't spend some time actually doing it. Most people can find their way to some positive thought. But anyway, learning to be still. But then there are specific things you can do. The breath work is so 